0: Genesis chapter twenty-five, the first twenty-two verses. Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bare him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shuah. And Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, and Latuishim and Leumamin. And Epher, and Hanak, and Ababa, and Elda, all these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward unto the east country." And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, an hundred threescore and fifteen years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, which is before Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, there was Abraham buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the well Lehori. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajak, and Kedar, and Abael, and Mibsam, and Mibsam, and Durham, and Massa, Hadar and Tema, Jetur, Naphish, and Kidama. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their towns and by their castles, twelve princes according to their nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, an hundred and thirty and seven years. And he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. And they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, that is before Egypt, as thou goest towards Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord entreated of him and Rebekah, and the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord." And thus is the reading of God's Word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. All right, well, um, let's ask the Lord's blessing on this. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee now that You would open up Your Word for us so that we might appreciate um, the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in the context of not only salvation, but the sanctification of Your people. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. So, uh, this morning's sermon I'm going to call a sanctified walk. We have covered some of these issues in the past. As you know, when I'm preaching in chapter 12, I'm reaching forward, and now that I'm up in chapter 25, we're going to look back on a few things. So, um, the things I share with you today, they ought not to be new things, but again, we're helping to put pieces of the puzzle together in a way that we would uh, better appreciate, as I said, the sovereignty of God and the tension of man as these things come together in terms of our experience. You know, we appreciate God's uh, sovereign umbrella over all things, but he does require us to do certain things or admonishes us to do certain things. So we're going to look at that today as we um, consider Abraham's life, because here we see he's going to the grave. This is the end of his life. So we see that Abraham is set apart, meaning he's sanctified by and unto God, and he is set before us as a man of faith. He's featured in, you know, um, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 as the man of faith, and he's lifted up in churches all over as an example of faith, and uh, I would do the same, because not because he's, uh, his walk was stellar, but because it was quite the opposite. He, he stumbles just like we do, just like everybody else. We can appreciate that he was a man, just like everybody else, and Romans chapter 3 talks about the nature of man. It says, there is none righteous, no, not one, that includes Abraham. It says, "...there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God." And that is true of Abraham. That is where he he started, when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. He was not seeking God. God sought him. As it continues in Romans chapter 3, it says, "...they are all gone out of the way." That would be Abraham. They are together become unprofitable. That would be he and his family, his kindred, his people. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That includes Abraham." If we continue to read through their tongue as an open sepulchre, with their tongues they've used deceit, the poison of asp is under their lip, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are their ways. The ways of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That includes Abraham, just like it includes you and me. The Lord says of himself in the Gospel of John chapter six, verse forty-four, that no man can come unto me. Unless the Father with has sent me, draw him. And so we have to appreciate that um, Abraham, like all men, um, is, it can be said, he is a man of like passions. God has to draw him to Christ, as he indeed has drawn all of us. And so we can appreciate that he was called um, by God unto himself. The scripture tells us that he was called by God. In Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter seven, verses one through four, and the reason I'm sharing this with you is because, like I said, in so many churches, he's lifted up as though he did something extraordinary, and I would say that he was obedient to the Lord, as indeed all are all the saints. But this gives us uh, this gives the glory to God in the things that He has done, and so in Acts chapter seven, the high priest uh, is questioning um, Stephen, and he said, "Stephen, men and brethren, fathers and fathers, hearken." The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said unto him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. So God has told him what to do. Verse 4, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, he, that would be God, removed him, Abraham, into this land wherein ye now dwell. So Stephen there is giving the credit for Abraham's relocation to God, and we see the same thing in Nehemiah chapter chapter 9, verse 7. In Nehemiah 9, 7, we read, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. So again, in Nehemiah, we are reading that again. God is sovereign. God called him and God brought him out and God changed his name um, as he drew him unto himself. So we appreciate that Abraham, as is true with all of the saints, he was chosen by God from the beginning. In Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, We read in verse 13, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, wherein he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, When you hear about people choosing Christ, making a decision for Jesus, you know that's not true. It was God who chose them. It was God who placed in their heart. It was God who drew them unto himself. And that is nothing that anybody can take credit for. Nevertheless, there is the exhortation to believe on God. So from the beginning, we were chosen, as was Abraham, unto salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, again Says similar verses, uh, similar words, and from verses three to um, I'm going to read it to verse six Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done something here, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And in verse four, according as he hath chosen us, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. A decision was made before the world was even made. God made a decision about you, about those whom he would choose unto himself, place, sanctify, set apart from the world, and place in his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This he did exclusively by his own will. We had no part in it. Again, it was before the foundation of the world. It was from the beginning all of this was set up and done by our sovereign God. Verse 6 to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So, again, I'm placing this umbrella of the sovereignty of God um, over us um, so that we would appreciate that he gets all glory. And we even re- um, sang those words in one of our hymns this morning that this all be to God's glory, that it takes place. Uh, and then. We can appreciate that the reality of the Christian experience um, doesn't always appreciate these truths because we read in um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will... And to do of his good pleasure, so this work out your salvation with fear and trembling is the world in which we operate in, because we struggle with issues of life, and we have to face things that are a challenge for us, and we have to try to ascertain what the lord's will is in our life. so again, so we see that God is sovereign in the life of Abraham, that he is working to will and to do of his good pleasure, um, coming from Ur of the Chaldees coming out of Babylon. Abraham had to put one foot after another and walk a very long distance to get himself into the promised land. And so I would hope that we would appreciate that air, That um, Abraham's experience um, is uh, representative of the experience for all Christians. you know, you got to get up and you got to put one foot after another and you've got to go out and you face the world and you suffer trials and tribulations and persecutions and you have to deal with that. Um, As a Christian, as one who has been called by God, as one in whom God is working to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so God calls us out of this world and he shepherds us on our walk of faith every step of the way um, with all of its trials and tribulations. Um, So last week I shared with us how a walk by sight makes us unfruitful Christians. We got that by looking at Matthew chapter 13. Um, which is to say that we are unfruitful in the spirit. You can be fruitful in the flesh and unfruitful in the spirit. And the Lord talks about that in Matthew 13, about not being fruitful in the uh, spirit. So if you walk by sight, you will be fruitful in the flesh. If you contrast Ishmael's life versus Isaac's life, we can see with respect to the reproductive... um, um, Blessings that um, Ishmael has enjoyed. He has 12 sons. They call him princes, 12 princes. Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And that's after 20 years of being married to his wife, um, Rebekah. In like manner, when you look at Galatians chapter 5, uh, look at verses 19 through 23, I won't read them all, but you see the works, plural, of the flesh, there's quite a bit of those um, fruits. There are 17 listed there under the works of the flesh. Then you go a little bit further, and it's not a coincidence that the works of the flesh are put first, and then comes the uh, fruit of the Spirit. It's actually singular, fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And the Lord lists nine that are there. So the works of the flesh are far more productive and produce uh, what I will call evil fruit. um, And the works, uh, excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit that's God working in you, to will and to do of his good pleasure, engaging in works that he has before ordained that we will walk in them, those are all the fruit of the Spirit, and that's all... Characterized as singular. So, as people who walked, past tense, in the flesh, before we received the call of God, we walked, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that worketh in the children of um, disobedience. That's the way we walked before we were called unto, um, unto God. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Um, And we were walking amongst all of those um, people of the world, we had our conversation with them, in other words, we interacted with them, and we fulfilled the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We behaved ourselves and conducted ourselves just like everybody else, as indeed did Abraham. Now, God called us out from amongst these people that we had our social interactions with um, and that we would separate ourselves emotionally and spiritually from them, not necessarily physically, but emotionally and spiritually with them. Later, he's going to give us an admonition to separate ourselves physically under certain conditions. So if you think back to what took place in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where we read about the call of Abraham, The Lord told him to get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, from there, to a land that I will show you. And so he goes, not knowing where he's going to go, because that's the nature of the Christian walk. When you're first starting out, you don't really know where you're going. We're heading to a um, celestial city. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it talks about that, it says, As it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. So as a Christian called out of this world, as a young Christian, God hasn't revealed these things to you. He hasn't revealed the glory of all of the things that await you, the glory of where it is that you are going. As you grow in Christ, then you move to verse 10, and it says, But... God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of Christ. And so when um, we talk to our families about um, the glory of heaven, they can't fathom what that is, because it's, spiritually, uh, it's only spiritually known, not by the Spirit of man, but by the Spirit of God. So they don't know where it is that you are going, and they don't know what the glory um, that awaits you is. And we, as we grow in Christ, we begin to have a better apprehension of it and have a better appreciation of it, what it's actually going to be. So it is with Abraham, the Spirit, the, uh, spirit says in um, Hebrews chapter 11, that he left not knowing where he was going. And that's what we should understand that as he doesn't appreciate all of the things and the blessings that yet await for him um, when he um, finishes his walk with the Lord. Um, so Abraham makes a long physical journey, indicative of his calling and separation from his country, his kindred, and his father's house. Now, most people, when they're called by the Lord, they remain in the proximity, the physical proximity of their family. Um, but having been called out from um, the world and set apart by God, they are spiritually distinct from them. They are spiritually distinct from them. And this is illustrated, if you happen to read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, the first time I read it, I thought he was actually leaving his family. Well, no, he's not leaving his family. He's not abandoning his family. God would give great admonitions against that. He's not divorcing his wife, but he's been separated from them spiritually. He's now in the kingdom of light, while his family continues to walk in darkness, in the kingdom of darkness. And so it is with us when God calls you, you are separated from uh, these people that uh, you might have shared a womb with, and uh, you are separated from the world spi- uh, um, spiritually. So in Abraham's case, the country that he left was Babylon. Uh, that represents the world, and it's spoken of in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, where God says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. And so God has called all of us, spiritually, to come out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. That would be God's elect, those that are free, uh, foreknown of him and predestinated unto um, glory. So as Abraham was called out of Babylon, so are we. Called out of spiritual Babylon. And it, then he's called out from his kindred. And that would be the children of disobedience, amongst whom we all had our conversation in times past. We are called to come out from those people. And verse and then as it says, the third thing Abraham was called out from, it says, and he's called out from thy father's house. In Joshua 24, 2, Joshua is giving a speech to the people of Israel, and he tells us that Abraham's father was an idolater. And indeed, that was probably what Abraham was too. And indeed, we were all idolaters until God called us out and called us away from those things. Jesus says in John 8, 44, he says, ye are, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father will ye do. So we are amongst all those people whose father is the devil. Our father, of course, is God, but they are idolaters. And so God calls Abraham and us out from amongst these people. He calls us out from the Babylonian world. calls us out from the influences of worldly people who are in rebellion to God. And he calls us out from Satan's dominion and influence. So not only does God separate us from the world, he separates the world from us. And this we see in the life of Abraham as well. You'll recall in chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 20, that it is Pharaoh who sends Abraham out of Egypt. Pharaoh sends him out of Egypt In chapter 20 of Genesis, it is Abimelech who has a vision of God not to touch Sarah. So God is working both sides of the equation. He's pulling us out from the world, and he's telling the world to leave us alone and remove the world from us. Of a truth, the world wants nothing to do with the Christian, with the exception of what secondary blessings they would receive as God blesses us. You see that in the life of Laban, where Jacob's trying to leave, and Jacob and Laban says, "Hey, I know that I've been blessed by God for your sake." So they want the secondary blessings that are associated with proximity to Christians, though they would have nothing to do with the Christian on a uh, spiritual level. We're also going to see that when we get further on in Genesis, with respect to uh, Shechem, and how um, Shechem after which a city is named Shechem, he uh, seduces Dinah, and they endeavor to um, link themselves by marriage to the Hebrews because they want those blessings. And we'll get to that. You'll see his conversation with his father as he's trying to sell this idea to him. Hey, we'll, we'll have part of their cattle, we'll have part of this, we'll have part of that. So they want the secondary blessings. It is only because Christians exist on this planet that it continues to revolve on its axis and that uh, God continues to feed people. He does it for our sake, for the benefit of the elect. When the last Christian is, comes into the ark, it's over, and the world will come to an end. Um, with respect to the separating of the world, we see that um, not only does he do it with Abraham, but he also does it with Isaac. Isaac, we are told, is the heir, and Abraham has a number of children. He has one through Hagar, he has one through Sarah, and he has six through Keturah. So he's got seven kids through the concubines. It is said that only Sarah is the wife of Abraham. Hagar and Keturah are listed as concubines, plural. And what does God do with the sons of the concubine, the children of the concubines? He sends them all away to keep them away from um, his son, Isaac. God will not have them intermix with Isaac. They are certainly not going to be heirs with Isaac. And as we move further uh, on in Genesis, we're going to find that the Midianites, which is one of Midian, is one of the sons of Keturah. The Midianites are going to be the people that draw Joseph out of the well. And uh, depending on where you read, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites sell Joseph into slavery. So these guys are only two generations removed from where they're going to. Um, do great evil uh, to Joseph, Jacob's son. So the world doesn't want anything to do with you. They are hostile to you ultimately, and uh, God will separate them from us and us from them. So consistent with God's grace, with respect to the way Abraham deals with the sons of the concubine, he provides for them all as a father should, and he sends them away uh, with gifts. Um, But Isaac is the one who is set apart, representing God's elect. Um, now whereas our god is said in a number of places in scripture to be a jealous god and we understand that in a positive light people are jealous for what is their own and they are envious that's a negative term for what belongs to somebody else that's really covetousness but to be a jealous god is a positive thing god loves us and he loves that which is his. He is jealous for what is his, the things that he has chosen, the people that he has chosen out of this world, the people that he has bought with a price um, through the death of his son, uh, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He is jealous for those people. Um, Having died for us and bought us with a price, um, he did that for our eternal good and for his glory And so he will always do that which is good for us and only that which is good for us, including severing us from unhealthy relationships and removing us from them or them from us so that there will be no occasion of stumbling between his people and their Savior. He will remove money or physical possessions from us, which our hearts might be fixed upon, and... uh, what things we might put temporal hope in or trust in. In other words, he'll remove idols from us. Whatever, you, whatever comes between you and God is an idol, and he'll remove those idols from us. Anything that captures or seeks our heart, God will, for our good, remove them. And that can be kind of a painful process as God takes things away from us and takes people out of our lives sometimes. Only God knows what is good for us in an eternal sense. And so, as painful as it might be for us, He must remove those things from our lives that come between us and Him. Anything our heart esteems greater than God in terms of our affections will have to move to the back seat. And so, if you don't move it to the back seat, He will move it for us. Now, when you think of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, is that thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, what was a and is a prohibition to all men, it was once a prohibition to us, I now see as a promise to God's people. And that is a wonderful promise that we will have no other gods before him, that he indeed is our God, he is jealous for his people, he knows what is for our good, and he does those things that are for our good, he knows that it is foolish for us, it brings nothing but vexation of heart and spirit if we place our trust on anything else other than him. True happiness and unspeakable joy is only had when focused on Christ, and so he'll remove those things which offer false hope and a false sense of security and um, temporal joy, he'll remove those so that we can place them on him. Um, And so um, God shapes us and conforms us to the image of his son, and all that he does is for our good. We will have no other gods before him, and he will see to that, and we can see him shepherding the life of Abraham throughout Genesis, that he removes (coughs) things from him, puts other things in his life, and he does those things that are necessary to... Um, conform Abraham to the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Um, At the end of our earthly lives, God having done all these things for us, as we enter into the glory, we can say, say, he will say, enter into the joy of thy Lord, thy good and faithful servant. But we will say, I know that in all my heart and in all my soul that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord my God spake concerning me. All are come to pass unto me, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Every promise that God has made to us, we will say at some point, you know what? He fulfilled all of his promises to me. Even though I stumbled and tripped and felled along the way, he was there ever with me, shepherding me, um, carrying me, dragging me through the difficult, the more difficult times, um, getting us to glory. To Abraham did God promise that he would go to his fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. Now, he told that to Abraham a long time before he died, and that would be a blessing to hear those words, that you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. So here in Genesis chapter 25, in verses 7 and 8, we read that all the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived were in hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. That's 175. He lived to be 175 years old. He was called of God when he was 75 years old, and he spent a hundred years as a pilgrim looking for that celestial city whose foundations, with foundations, Whose builder and maker is God. Verse 8, we read, and then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. I went to a memorial a couple weeks ago, and after a one hour service, you know, where you're talking about the individual, the pastor leading it got up and said, It's hard to summarize a man's life. Um, I don't think so. I think you can summarize it the way Jacob said when he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. I could say that. On my tombstone, I want it to be said, a sinner saved by grace. So I don't find it difficult to summarize a Christian's life because all that we have and all that we owe is to our Lord who saved us, drew him unto himself, dragged us out of this world, and um, uh, predestinated us unto adoption of sons unto himself. So... Um, Abraham's life is long. We see all sorts of trials and tribulations, but he gets to glory. He's buried in a good old age, goes to his fathers in peace. Um, he's gathered unto his people. He is set apart in Christ, meaning sanctified from eternity past. He's called to God at age 75. Pilgrims for a 100 years, shepherded by God a 100 years, and then he dies and is gathered to his people, to his fathers in peace. Abraham, like all those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone, as we read in First Peter, chapter one, verse five, was kept by the power of God through faith. He was kept by the power of God through faith. They call that the preservation of the saints. God will make sure you get to glory. There's nothing in this world that can come between you and the love of God. He's a jealous God. Nothing will come between you and the love of God. In verse 9 of 1 Peter 1, it says, speaking of the saint, this is also Abraham, and receive the end or the object of his faith which was the salvation of his soul. And indeed, so shall we all receive the salvation of our soul by virtue of God's promise uh, promise and his uh, protection, preservation uh, of us. Um, As we have seen from Genesis 12 through 25, we've seen Abraham's walk of faith and helps us appreciate God's grace and mercy in his life, preserving him and keeping him by his power. We saw him stumble many times in sin, sometimes, I think, grievously so. And yet, Jesus says of Abraham that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, to see Christ's day, to see Christ's redemptive work on the cross. And he saw it, Abraham saw it, and was glad. Abraham knew he was a sinner and knew that he needed redemption. And so he looked to Christ, and as looking to Christ, he saw the cross. He saw the redemptive work of Christ for his benefit when he looked at the cross. And I pray that all of us can see that with respect to us as well. We can see Christ's work on the cross as it applies in our lives. And so Abraham looked forward to the cross, and we look backward to the cross. And because of what Christ has done for us, we have peace with God, and like Abraham, when God called him home, and when he calls us home and we give up the ghost and go to the grave, we, soul and spirit, shall be gathered unto our people with Abraham, gathered unto the Father in peace. We will be gathered with all the saints the people that are set apart unto God, the people that are dead to the world and yet alive to God in Christ. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. As for Ishmael, when he died, we read in verse 17 of um, chapter 25, when, as for Ishmael, when he died, he was gathered unto his people. And that would be a different people because he was separated. Remember, Abraham sent him away, so he was separated from Isaac to a different people. And he is not going to be heir with Isaac. And what is he, Isaac inheriting? He's inheriting eternal life. All the sons of Abraham's concubines were sent away and separated from Isaac. And they will be gathered unto their people as Abraham is gathered unto his people. Uh, the fact that God separates people unto salvation is a common theme throughout the whole Bible. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about Matthew chapter 25, where we speak of Jesus, the King of glory, separating um, people, separating the nations between the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. All judgment has been commended into his hands and he will separate the nations from each other. The sheep on the right to life eternal, The goats on the left to everlasting punishment. Each group is separated unto their own people. Abraham, it is said, was gathered to his people. Isaac, chapter 35, verse 29, is gathered unto his people. Jacob, chapter 49, verse 33, gathered unto his people. All three men. With their respective wives, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, are all buried in the cave of Machpelah, which we saw was a type of Christ. They're all gathered to be with their people in peace. And they are declared to be alive by Jesus when he says, I'm not the God. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all the God of the living. Ishmael, verse 17, gathered unto his people, different. Ishmael, we saw that was God greatly blessed him in a temporal sense for Abraham's sake. He's blessed with towns and castles and nations. He's got 12 princes for son. He dies according to the name given to him by God. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, God tells uh, Hagar about Ishmael. He's going to be called Ishmael. And in verse 12, it says he will be a wild ass of a man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his people. Not only did he dwell in the presence of his people, unlike Abraham, who was called out, Isaac set apart, Jacob set apart, he not only did he dwell amongst his people, he died amongst his people too. If you um, Genesis chapter 25. In verse 17, it says, And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. Verse 18, And they dwelt from Hebalah unto Shur, which is before Egypt, as thou goest to Assyria. And he died in the presence of of all his brethren. The second word uh, translated as died there in verse 18 is also translated elsewhere as fell. He fell amongst his people. So it's quite suggestive that as his hand was against every man and every man's hand against him, it's quite likely that he was actually slain uh, by these people. That death that death is mentioned twice. You'll see in other places in the Bible, for example, respecting Goliath Goliath dies twice, once by a stone in the forehead and once by having his head severed by David. When you see that a person dies twice, you can be fairly certain that they're being cast into the lake of fire, suffering the second death. So he's gathered unto his people, and Isaac and Abraham, Jacob, are all gathered unto their people in their deaths. Genesis chapter 1 talks about the separation from the very beginning of the Bible. It speaks about separating light from dark, day from night, and 1 Thessalonians 5, um, verse 5, it helps us to appreciate what's in view there is a spiritual reality. Um, Ye are the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So when the Spirit of the Lord is moving across the face of the deep and he says, let there be light, that's a separation of saints, uh, the elect from the non-elect. The saints are the children of the light. They are the children of the day. Uh, So when we hear the gospel gospel call, it's a call for obedience. It's a call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 1, we read about the sovereignty of God, God separating people, and yet we get into the gospels and we see that the Lord is calling people and they must obey. God commands people everywhere to believe on on his son, Jesus Christ. You're commanded to believe on him. John 12, 36, the Lord says, While ye have light... Believe in the light, that ye may be children of the day. Jesus says that I am the light of the world. We know that he is the truth, the the way, the truth, and the life. So believe in the light is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, whosoever believeth on me shall not abide in darkness. So again, we see this um, sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We see the sovereignty back in Genesis chapter 1. Now the Lord is placing the responsibility with us. To believe on him. So if you hear God calling you out of Babylon, you need to do as did Abraham, you need to heed the call and come out and be ye separate. Separate from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house. And we need to walk in the light, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that is God, that God is working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. and so we must ever trust in him, and we should turn to him in our trials and our tribulations with the Lord promises us we will have. Now, Abraham failed to do that in his early Christian walk, but not so Isaac. Isaac has seen the defunctionality associated with a family that walks according to sight, that walks in the flesh, and he has learned from that. And so he behaves and conducts himself like a more mature Christian. 20 years, he is married with his wife, while his half-brother is having children. He has no children. His wife is barren, and he's watching Ishmael um, have lots of children. So what does he do? Well, what did his father do? His father and his wife, his mother, Sarah, got together and said, you know, maybe you should lay with Hagar. Maybe that's how God meant to fulfill this promise. That is not what Isaac, the more mature Christian, does. In verse 21 of uh, Genesis 25, it says, he entreats the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So he does what we should do. He comes before the throne of mercy and grace where he might find grace to help, grace to conceive. And we read that when Rebecca conceives and has some trouble with her pregnancy, she's got two nations in her, and we'll talk about that later. She's having twins, and they're fighting each other (laughs) in the womb as they will outside the womb. What does she do? Verse 22, she inquires of the Lord. Again, that's what we should do. We should always take everything to the Lord first. Uh, I know we have a propensity to do something other than that. We tend to move into the flesh. We tend to seek our own understanding and what ways we might solve the problem rather than to go to the Lord first. So after we fall on our face and fail that we go, oh, maybe I should ask the creator of heaven and earth what the best thing to do would have been. Um, but we should do that first. So both of these uh, individuals, Isaac and uh, Rebecca, are examples of how a more mature Christian should uh, conduct themselves. Um, We ever navigate the sovereignty of God, like I said, associated with the responsibility of man. So as the Lord sovereignly separates his people from the world, he admonishes us to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So now we're going to dump it back in our lap. He admonishes us to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That's James 1.27. And so we have to think about how we spend our time and who we spend it with. What kind of effect does that relationship have um, on our lives and our relationship with God, the God who died for us, and the God with whom we will spend eternity with? How do the people in our lives impact our walk with God? Scripture says if the people walk disorderly, whether they are Christians or not, God says to withdraw yourself from them. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. If they try to advance the idea that material gain is godliness, God says to withdraw yourself from them. That's 1 Timothy 6, 5. We are admonished to crucify the flesh with the affections and the lusts. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow Christ. And so you can think of these things as what I call participatory sanctification or experiential sanctification because that's the reality of the Christian walk. You are faced with these things and God admonishes you in terms of what things you should do and what things you should not do. So... He's sovereign over all things, but again, he tells us what we should and should not do. So people often wonder what God's will is. You can read about it if you read his word. His will will be made known to you if you read his Bible. Um, So I share these admonitions because it is not uncommon for Christians to fall exclusively on the sovereignty of God, which is the overriding truth. However, the same sovereign God has given us some marching orders, which we are supposed to obey, out of a reverential fear and love for God because it is for our good to do so. Um, And so what we see here is what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Abraham had to do it, and we saw how difficult his walk was. Um, And indeed, it is for all the saints. We're going to see Isaac have some issues. We'll see Jacob have lots of issues. We'll see Joseph have some issues, and it works all the way down. Moses, David, all Christians have issues with this world, and all Christians are admonished to um, walk circumspectly, keep ourselves from the world, and uh, be mindful of what activities you engage in and what that has to do, how that affects your relationship um, with God. Speaking of Christ, the uh, Lord tells us that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He is, of course, the epitome of the example of how we should live and conduct our lives because we are indeed being conformed to his image. And so, again, I fall back on the summary of my life and the life, really, of all saints, and that is we are sinners saved by grace. Few and evil will be the days of our lives, and then we shall uh, be gathered unto our people, unto God's people, in peace. Amen. I that.